Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Tyree Nichols laid to rest tonight. The 29-year-old who was just trying to get home, beaten beyond recognition by police officers, just about 80 yards from his own front door. The horrific scenes were caught on camera. The DA down in Memphis says up to 20 more hours, including audio from after the beating and after the ambulance takes Tyree Nichols to the hospital, has yet to be released. But apparently it is forthcoming. Tyree Nichols' mother grieving, Ravon Wells, calling for the passage of the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. I just need whatever that George Floyd bill we needed passed. Yeah. Yeah. We need to take some action because there should be no other child that should suffer the way my son and all the other parents here have lost their children. We need to get that bill passed. Amen. Because if we don't, that blood, the next child that dies, that blood is going to be on their hands. A sorority that no one wants to be a part of, of all the mothers who were impacted and fathers and loved ones. His older sister, Tyree Nichols' sister, Kiana Dixon, saying that she is heartbroken at the loss of her own brother. It left me completely heartbroken. I see the world showing him love and fighting for his justice. But all I want is my baby brother back. Her baby brother, Tyree Nichols, was laid to rest in Memphis. Memphis of extraordinary significance, not only because it's where he lived and where he died, but because of the powerful city's place in the struggle that is ongoing for civil rights in this country. The very same city where Dr. King fought for justice for black workers. The city where he was assassinated 55 years ago. On April 4th, 1968, on the balcony of his room at the Lorraine Motel, Now, in his eulogy for Tyree Nichols, the Reverend Al Sharpton invoked that moment and talked about how, before the funeral, he actually visited the Lorraine Motel with his youngest daughter. Dr. King had came to Memphis to fight for garbage workers, city employees that had no safety. Two had been killed with a malfunction. And here we are, Ashley, 55 years later, looking at the balcony where Martin Luther King shed his blood for city workers, for black city workers to be able to work in the police department, 
working sanitation. And the reason why Mr. and Mrs. Wells, what happened to Tyree is so personal to me, is that five black men that wouldn't have had a job in the police department would not ever be thought of to be in an elite squad. In the city that Dr. King lost his life, not far away from that balcony, you beat a brother to death. People had to march and go to jail and some lost their lives to open the doors for you. And how dare you? Act like that sacrifice was enough for nothing. I want to expand on that very point and bring in Michael Eric Dyson, distinguished university professor of ethics and society at Vanderbilt University's Divinity School. Michael Eric Dyson, what a moment. And frankly, it's stringing together a far too many moments in the hour of America's history. And I wonder, from your perspective, you were at the funeral today. So emotional. The idea of it happening in Memphis in particular, the idea of the sacrifice that Reverend Sharpton spoke about in respect to Dr. King. Tell me what went through your mind today. Yes, I I was there, spent a lot of time with Reverend Sharpton. The brutal paradox he underscored that Martin Luther King Jr. at 39 years old, standing in front of room 306 on the Lorraine Motel balcony, where a report rang out against the, across the parking lot, felling the greatest leader for civil rights we've ever seen in this nation, exploding its report inside of his jaw, cutting his necktie off at the knot. He fell backwards on the ground. His legs were bicycling through the banister. His best friend, Ralph Abernathy, went into the room, extracted a board from the laundered shirt and scooped his blood into a jar saying, this is the blood of the prophets. That moment in black America and indeed American history is monumental. So much so that a man who was felled by an assassin's bullet is now raised 19 feet above the highest monument on the sacred ground of Washington DC as a representative of this nation's best ideals. In that city, because of his efforts, black police people, Black fire people were able to gain employment. And what Reverend Sharpton underscored today, that brutal paradox, is that the very progress made by Martin Luther King Jr. and all, et al., has now been undercut by an act of vicious, if you will, renunciation of the very fundamental structure of democracy and of racial loyalty. The way in which Reverend Sharpton spliced those together is especially important. Because here were five black cops who beat to death a black man. And as Vice President Kamala Harris said, at the hands and feet of black men who were ostensible brothers to this black man, whose struggle of Martin Luther King Jr. made possible their very jobs, undercut the very people he loved. It is a jarring reminder of just how complicated these issues are. I do want to 
get deeper into that. You mentioned the words, the phrase racial loyalty. And in fact, Reverend Sharpton spoke about the, the insulting nature of it being five black men. In addition, of course, and it should not be lost on anyone. I know it's not lost on you as well. The power dynamic of an abusive power and those who are powerful that also right. are black. But listen to what Reverend Sharpton mentioned about the particular insult of it being black men. Listen. There's nothing more insulting and offensive to those of us that fight to open doors that you walk through those doors and act like the folks we had to fight for to get you through them doors. You didn't get on the police department by yourself. The police chief didn't get there by herself. People had to march and go to jail and some lost their lives to open the doors for you. And how dare you? Act like that sacrifice was enough for nothing. In many respects, Michael Eric Dyson, we, we talk a lot about the idea of diversifying the powers that be, having seats at the table with the hope that one, one has a seat at the table, they will inevitably not have their community on the menu. But here, mm-hmm. and what we've seen with Tyree Nichols, there is something perverse, um, albeit perhaps not as shocking as we'd like to b- believe that people in power will abuse it. Speak to me about the particularity of the racial loyalty that you speak of. Yeah, it's a brilliantly put, uh, Ms. Coles. Um, th- the fact is this, that when we speak about racial loyalty, we're, we're premising that upon the fact that we have struggled together. We have endured oppression together. We know implicitly, almost intuitively, what it means to be subject to arbitrary forms of power that have been exercised against our vulnerable black bodies. So the last thing in the world we want to do is to turn around and replicate the very thing that uh, in in one sense um, pointed us out as people who were exceptions to the American dream as opposed to recipients of it. So when you got five black cops that we have worked for, that we have struggled for, that we have, Reverend Sharpton said, marched on behalf to put them there. For them to undercut us is a, a strike that is especially brutal. Now, let's be honest. In Minnesota as well with George Floyd, look at the multiracial fact. Two white cops, an Asian cop, and a black cop killed a black man. So here's the point. You can have multiculturalism and diversity that is not just those that was an act of uh, diversity uh, in Minnesota, and yet it was not toward justice. This was an act of racial progress by having black men on a force, but it was not toward justice. This is why Martin Luther King Jr. said it's not white versus black. It's right versus wrong. And Dr. King said, let us not replace black supremacy with white supremacy. People thought he was off his rocker, that he was being, um, you know, that he was exaggerating the case. He understood At the end of the day, those who willed and possess power will be tempted to brutalize those without that power. And what we saw in this case is that men were using their badges and guns as pretexts to exercise the lethal force and ferocity of their power. In the same way, we complain about white brothers 
ancestors doing the same against us. If it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander, and we've got to stand up against it as an act of the ultimate racial loyalty to our principles and practices. As an act of humanity, indeed. Michael Eric Dyson, always a pleasure to get your insight in particular on these particular matters. And frankly, we've discussed topics like this for far too long, you and I together and beyond. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for doing such a good job in doing this. Thank you, Michael. I want to bring in a woman now who knows all too well what Tyree Nichols' family is going through tonight. Emerald Garner is the daughter of Eric Garner, who died in 2014 after being placed in an unauthorized chokehold by a police officer. And his final words, I can't breathe, were captured on video to become a rallying cry for police reform and the Black Lives Matter movement. Emerald Garner joins me now. Emerald, thank you for being here this evening. I I have to tell you, um, just thinking about this phrase that keeps going through my mind, never again, and then once again, here we are. And I'm always struggling, as I know you are, trying to figure out how we get to never again lasting. Tell me about what it's been like for you each time we hear instances and you see instances of police encounters that have turned deadly. It must be particularly triggering and especially sad for you. Talk to me about what it's been like today. Um, I first want to send my love and light to the family of Tyree Nichols. Um, If nobody else understands what you're going through, I understand um, what you're going through. And it's absolutely triggering. Um, It plays on, you know, all of my emotions, it, it's just, it just brings up old feelings and it's kind of like PTSD where you get stuck and, you know, you, you fall back into the, the motions of what you felt, uh, well, what I felt nine years ago, almost nine years ago. When you, um, so it's important that you've said that. And I think people really have to understand that this is continuing. This is not something that just has an end date for what happens, but, um, and the fact that you have been through and are still going through this, I I wonder in particular, you know, in the media, there's always a tendency to shine a light and have the cameras present. But there is a point in time when the cameras go away and the red light stops and attentions turn in a different direction. What is left for the family who is behind? What is that process ahead for the family of Tyree Nichols? Um, There's going to be a lot of emotions. Um, you know, um, I just completed my first memoir, which walked um, folks through what I was going through from the day that my father was killed um, up until now. Um, we needed mental health services. I want people to reach out to provide those services, bereavement services. I encourage people to go to my website and just look at the many ways that, that I've been healing over the past couple of years, the things that I've been doing to get myself to a place where I can wake up and get out of the house every day. Um, It's very hard. Um, They're going to need time. You know, right now there's a lot of cameras. There's a lot of excitement. Everybody wants to be there. But it's a very different feeling when those cameras go away because you're left with your thoughts. You're left with your feelings. You're left with the emotion that you have to keep reliving every day that that you go through these emotions. And his mother today spoke about the idea of her son having an assignment. Um, an assignment from God, and that the only solace she's able to take as she is trying to even approach grief 
is that the assignment is complete. And yet you had Vice President Kamala Harris today. I want to play for you this moment because she spoke about um, an assignment that's legislative in part, and that has to do with how to codify the grief in a way that is productive and prevents. And listen to what she had to say about the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act just today. I was, as a senator, as a United States senator, a co-author of the original George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And as Vice President of the United States, we demand that Congress pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Joe Biden will sign it. And we should not delay and we will not be denied. It is non-negotiable. What was your reaction to her saying that today? Um, To be honest, I didn't watch the funeral. I spent today Mm -hmm. doing things that were emotionally um, fulfilling for me because I knew that if I went there, I would be set back to eight years ago, you know, almost almost nine years ago. And I didn't hear her say that, but that is what we need. Um, Myself, I've been working on plenty of campaigns. We got the Eric Garner um, Choco Act signed into New York state legislation. If you visit my website, www.wecanbreathe.net, it gives you a whole list of all the things that we did last year pushing for legislation. This is what we need. This is what we needed her to say. This is what we needed to show the public that we have strong people with us. We needed her to say that. So that was a need. And if you see, it just pumped me up. My whole energy just changed because I'm excited about it. We need these legislations to be passed. And the only way that we can get these things done and if we, is if we mobilize together. We need to have these things done because we don't want to see another Tyree Nichols. We don't want to see another Eric Garner. We don't need this list. We don't need this list to get any longer. We need legislation. We can talk about Um, We can have these conversations all day. We can have people come on and give their opinions. We can have people go out and march and protest. But when it really counts, we really need people to stand with us. And I've seen it time and time again. People come, they say, I got you. We're here. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And then three months go by. You never hear them again. One year Mm -hmm. goes by. You never hear them again until it's an anniversary until there's a, a a birthday or something, you know, uh, my sister died three years after my father and we decided to name the organization We Can't Breathe because we're a collective and without my sister and my father, I'm not able to breathe easy. I'm really not because I'm missing them. I should be here with my sister fighting for my father, but now I have to fight for my sister and my father. So I relate 100% to everybody that attended attended the funeral. They needed to see people. And I just want the people to continue to stand with them and stay with them and be with them and support them through their time of need. They're going to need a lot of people. One person can't just help. They need a, a village of people to help them. Emerald, I'm so glad I got a chance to talk to you tonight and to hear your perspective in particular. It's so important. And look, if we're going to talk about putting our money where our mouth, where our money is, our money, where our mouth is, maybe put our legislation where our humanity ought to be as well. Thank you so much for joining tonight. Thank you. Everyone, when we come back, why Hunter Biden's attorneys want an investigation of what they call efforts to weaponize his personal data, purported to have come from his own laptop against his father. Why the aggressive new legal strategy and will it be effective We'll see.
New tonight, attorneys for Hunter Biden asking state and federal agencies to investigate a computer repair shop owner, also Rudy Giuliani, and right-wing political figures allegedly involved in spreading his personal data. It marks a change in Hunter Biden's legal strategy, and frankly, the first time his lawyers are saying that it is his personal data purported to be found on a laptop left at the Delaware repair shop. Now, the personal data includes what appears to be a trove of financial documents and emails and photos, including some potentially salacious material. Joining me now to discuss all of this, CNN legal analyst Ellie Honig and author of the brand new book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It, a question everyone's always asking. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But let's talk about this Hunter Biden strategy that we're learning about. It does mark a shift, right? Yeah, Hunter Biden on the offensive. This is quite an attack that he's launching against many of his opponents across a range of possibilities. What I find interesting about this is, on the one hand, he may have a point on some of this. It is a federal crime to essentially hack, to access someone's information on a computer without authorization. And if you get that kind of information, to knowingly spread it. He may have a point there. He's also lodging defamation claims against certain people who he claims knowingly spread false information about him. But here's the thing. Even if he's right, None of that has anything to do with any of the things he's under investigation for, Hunter Biden. He's under investigation for potential tax fraud, for a potential firearms offense. So he can be right, and I see what he's doing. It's the the best defense is is a good offense, but it's not really going to protect him from the Justice Department if they see fit to indict him. And of course, the political talking point is to connect that behavior allegedly to anything with respect to the president of the United States and try to bridge that gap. And We know logic doesn't always come into play there. But also, speaking of his father, President Biden, there was a search that did not come with anything from the FBI of classified docs. Tell me why you think the searches are continuing. It's obviously no longer an honor system. Well, they have to exhaust all the possibilities into the ground. Good news for Joe Biden. The best news of the day is no documents were found, no classified documents were found in that beach house. FBI clearly has decided we need to search every home residence office and make sure we have everything. And then they'll do the special counsel's job of deciding if there's anything criminal. You know, interesting as well. I mean, we're hearing a lot about the charges that are coming and swirling around the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. One in particular um, has people scratching their heads. It relates to the hush money payments of Stormy, to Stormy Daniels. Now, your book, actually, which is an incredible one, it's called Untouchable. It's an unbelievable read. I have to tell you, thinking about it, you actually reveal in the book that your former office, SDNY, first looked at this at a federal level, but never charged. Yeah. Tell me about this. Yeah, so I uh, reveal in this book what was happening behind closed doors at our former workplace, the United States Justice Department, back in 2021 when Donald Trump is leaving office. Now he can be indicted by the Justice Department. And my old office, the Southern District of New York, had this hush money investigation. They decided not to charge him. They decided they had problems with the credibility of Michael Cohen. They didn't believe some of the other witnesses who came in. And they felt that While they could have indicted, may have been close to the line, they could have indicted, they were wary about the practical and political pratfalls of potentially indicting a former president. And they also felt, conversely, that, well, he's done all these other more significant things. This is just weeks after January 6th. And so they gave it a pass. Now, two years later, across the street, the state prosecutor, the Manhattan DA, is reviving this and seemingly going through a lot of the same steps that I outlined in that book that the, that the SDNY went through two years ago, we'll see if the DA reaches the same conclusion or perhaps a different conclusion. Maybe they ought to read your book and figure out what went wrong. And figure There's out some good information there. They There's ought to read it. There's some good data. Well, listen, this book, I mean, um, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It, that, that question um, is really the number one question I'm sure you get yeah. about 
how do we have these sort of two justice systems, one for the wealthy and one for everybody else? Your book does case studies about this very notion. Can you answer the question? How people who power, how powerful people get away with it. I think I can help people understand that because people like to look inside the criminal justice system. And in a way, Laura, this book is sort of a bookend to your book because you take your experience as a prosecutor, as do I, and you examine some of the inequities, some of the disadvantages that people face. And I t- take sort of the same perspective. I'm looking at some of the built-in advantages mm. for powerful people, for wealthy people embedded in our laws. Um, I talk about how some savvier bosses know how to exploit those vulnerabilities. And frankly, as you do, I examine the role of prosecutors and I say, we do our best. We have the high principles, but we don't always live up to that. And, and I do call out in this book several prosecutors who I think have failed to adequately pursue justice against powerful people. I mean, you talk about Jeffrey Epstein. You talk about Bill Cosby. You talk about yep. Trump. Merrick Garland does not escape your um, your gaze as well in this book. <laughs> this is two attorney general in yeah. attorney general Rowe who I've had issues with yeah. on different levels. Merrick Garland has been straight. He's been honest. But thus far, he's not been up to the task of holding powerful people to account. Maybe that'll change, but he hasn't done it yet. If you read it, you'll know why. Everyone, the book again is Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. Thanks, Ellie. Thanks, Laura. I appreciate it. Look, black taxpayers, did you realize, are at least three times as likely to be audited by the IRS, this according to a new study. The question is, why is this happening? Well, I'm going to ask a top Treasury Department official all about it from this black taxpayer next. Well, it's a notice nearly every American has dreaded receiving. A tax audit from the IRS. They're long, they're complicated, and according to a new study, they impact some Americans disproportionately more than others. That study, conducted by researchers with Stanford University, found that black taxpayers are at least three times as likely to be audited as other taxpayers. The question is why? Well, it's not because of bias with individual agents, but rather discrimination in the computer algorithms the agency uses to determine who should be targeted. Joining me now is Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyema joining us now. Nice to have you here, Secretary. Thank you for joining. Um, you know, when I first read about this study and the results of it, the idea of three times as likely for black taxpayers to be audited is pretty startling to a lot of people. Help me break down these findings and about this idea that it's not individual bias by an IRS agent, but rather it's an algorithm that is the problem. Well, Laura, thank you so much for having me. And from the beginning, for the president, Secretary Yellen, and myself, we've been focused on making sure that we fairly administer the tax code. And it isn't fair that working class black Americans or working class people in general are more likely to be audited than millionaires in America. But because of underfunding of the IRS for the last 10 years, millionaires are 80% less likely to be audited today than they were 10 years ago. And the challenge that you face is that it's really easy to audit someone like you or me who gets a W-2 and gets a paycheck that the IRS can look at, but it's far harder to audit um, wealthy individuals, people who earn most of their money not through paychecks, but by collecting stocks and through partnerships and things that are complicated. And that's why the president has pushed so hard for the $80 billion the IRS received as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, money that's going to help the IRS improve their technology and also improve their audits against wealthy individuals, 
what the Secretary is committed is that the money that's going to be used to upgrade the IRS is going to be focused on going after wealthy tax cheats who make more than $400,000 a year. So those investments will help us make sure that those people who are the most likely to hide money from the tax system are the ones that we go after going forward. Well, those that can hide money have more money, right? And the idea of thinking about that, and as, as you mentioned, it might be very counterintuitive to people to think, look, the more complicated the tax returns and the idea that people are able to put money here and put money there, that that would be the likely person not to be held to literal accounting on these issues. I remember seeing pictures of the what, the IRS cafeteria in Austin with the um, being covered in, in boxes as an account and a result of having all of the underfunding. But this idea and the correlation of the earned income tax credit really interests me in particular because there is a correlation, as you mentioned, the income level and those who are going to be taking advantage of certain programs, not exploiting, but taking advantage of opportunities to do so, that the racial disparities and the wealth gaps that we have in our country really contribute in part to the algorithm being able to disproportionately impact and and really um, put in a position black and brown people in this country. And Laura, you know this well, given the reporting you've done on it, but the reality is that people who earn a, earn a paycheck in the working class are often the ones who are the hit hardest by things like this. And that's why the president and the secretary have been focused on making sure that we get the funding to ensure that we can set up a tax system that pushes for fairness not only fairness, but also puts us in a position to earn money from the people who are the most likely to have money to hide going forward. Well, the, I want to Today, cut you off, Secretary, but me, one, one moment, if I, I don't want to cut you off, but I, I am really interested in this particular point. I know we're talking about an increase in funding, um, and I don't pretend to be a Steve Jobs or a, or a Wozniak, but why can't we just fix the algorithm? Why is the funding contingent, on, why is the algorithm contingent on an increase in funding? No, we definitely are working to fix the algorithm, but not only fix the algorithm to make sure that we're in a position where we're fair going forward, but also to fix the algorithm in a way that allows us to go after those who are most likely to hide large amounts of money going forward. So it's not only that we need to make sure that the tax code is administered in a way that is fair for all Americans, which is essential and something that the president has called on the IRS to do. We have been working to do that, but the thing we also want to do is make sure that we're going to use the resources of the IRS to go after those people who are the least likely to pay for the things that we need in America, like our roads, like our schools. And we know those are wealthy Americans who make more than $400,000 a year. So I agree with you that one of the things we need to do is address the challenges that we have with our technology system and to improve that to make sure that the tax code is administered fairly. But in addition to doing that, we want to make sure that we're raising the money to pay for the things we need in this country. You know, I want to play for you really quickly um, what Speaker McCarthy, in the wee small hours of the morning when he was first elected and got that gavel, one of his first orders of business was to address the idea of the IRS. Listen to this real quick. I know the night is late, but when we come back, our very first bill will repeal the funding for 87,000 new IRS. We believe government should be to help you, not go after you. You've got a pretty steep hurdle if that's one of the first orders of business in terms of funding. And I want to just make sure that we're all aware of why they're going after the IRS. It's because they know that if you fund the IRS, what it means is that you're going to be able to fix things like our technology infrastructure, 
to put us in a position to be able to go after wealthy tax cheats and to also improve services because frankly one of the things that working class people and middle class people want are better services going forward. With the money that we've already had, we've hired 5,000 new people to be on the phones. We're offering better services to people who get the earned income tax credit so they can file their taxes properly so that we can lower the audit rates of those individuals going forward. Today, the IRS has as many employees as they had in 1970, and their technology system is based on 1960s technology. We need to upgrade those things to make sure that we're in a position where we can go after the people who are the most likely to hide money from the IRS that can be used to pay for the things we need in this country. And those are wealthy ta tax sheets and those who earn more than $400,000. Before you go, I do want to get your thoughts on today's meeting between Speaker McCarthy and President Biden on the debt ceiling. McCarthy saying that he told the president that the House would not pass a clean debt ceiling with no strings attached. Meanwhile, President Biden, of course, saying that he won't negotiate over the debt limit and he welcomes a separate discussion. Where do things stand today? So the, the president made clear that he had a frank conversation with the speaker and he's also made clear that he's happy to talk about how we can reduce our debts and deficits. And by the way, we've reduced the deficit by $1.7 trillion over the course of the president's first two years. But the thing that he's not willing to do is to have that conversation in a place where we're threatening to default on the nation's obligations. We both need to meet our commitments to paying for things like our troops and Social Security, while also talking about how we can bring down our debts and deficits. The president has a plan to do so, and we look forward to having that conversation. Secretary Ariyama, thank you for your time this evening. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Up next, everyone, Tom Brady is retiring, dot, 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 again. But will it sick this time? And what does his ex-wife Giselle have to say about it? Well, Bob Costas breaks it all down for us after this. Well, apparently this time it's official, official. Superstar quarterback Tom Brady says he is retiring and that he means it this time. I'll get to the point right away. I'm retiring for good. I know the process uh, was a pretty big deal last time. So when I woke up this morning, I figured I'd just press record and let you guys know first. So I uh, won't be long-winded. You only get one super emotional retirement essay, and I used mine up last year. Well, no one better to talk to about Tom Brady retiring than the great Bob Costas. You saw this announcement today, Bob. It comes a year to the day mm -hmm. of the first retirement, and he really is one of the most decorated players of all time. Can you just speak to what he means, not yeah. just the sport of football, but to sports at large? Well, he's among a handful of all-time great athletes who transcends his sport in terms of awareness to the general public beyond those who otherwise wouldn't be that interested uh, in the game. Uh, Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, Serena Williams, talking about relatively contemporary athletes. You go back further, you talk about Babe Ruth and other people in, in that sort of category. Uh, and Brady certainly is in that category. Somebody doesn't have to know a screen pass from a field goal to know who Tom Brady is. So he's got fame, but he, it's an earned fame. Uh, his achievements are extraordinary. 
You could say that in some respects, Peyton Manning rivaled him, certainly his greatest contemporary. Joe Montana went to four Super Bowls, won them all, threw 11 touchdown passes and no interceptions in those four games. But on sheer volume of achievement and longevity, nobody rivals Brady. Went to 10 Super Bowls, won seven of them. Now, last year, when he changed his mind about retirement, he was coming off a season where he led the NFL in yards passing, well over 5,000 yards, and led the league in touchdown passes with 43. And his Tampa Bay Bucks had won the Super Bowl the year before, and they nearly beat the Rams in the playoffs, the team that ultimately went on to win the Super Bowl. So you could see him thinking, hey, I'm pretty close. I got another chance to go back. And then this year, his team went eight and nine in the regular season, only got into the playoffs because they won a weak division. And then he had a poor playoff game, as did his team. And maybe that told him that at age 45, even though he can still play well, he perhaps will never play as well as he once did. Plus, he undoubtedly concluded that it couldn't reach that peak again in Tampa because of various circumstances. So he'd have to relocate again, find another team that was a fit. And he's got family issues. He wants to stay close to his kids who live in Florida. So there's all those things put together. This was the time. I have no mm-hmm. doubt that this is final. And I will say, I mean, this was the first regular season with the re- first losing record, frankly, for Brady in his 22 yeah. seasons and his NFL stars. So maybe that's part of it. You did mention people like Peyton mm-hmm. Manning and Serena Williams as a contemporary. Just to show you the comments they have made. Serena saying, I'm getting teary-eyed watching this. Sad to see you go. Welcome to the retirement world again. Peyton Manning saying, it was an honor and a privilege to compete against him on the field. And I truly appreciate his friendship off the field. And his ex-wife, Giselle Bunchen saying, wishing you only wonderful things in this new chapter of your life. What do you think the next chapter does hold? When he retired the first time, there were talks about him becoming a sports analyst. Is that next? Well, yeah, he's got a deal with Fox Sports that reportedly calls for $375 million over 10 years. It involves him, at least in theory, being the color man or analyst on their number one broadcast team. But beyond that, he's going to be an ambassador for all of their interests. So think of the value of saying to a potential partner, corporate partner of some kind, sponsor, hey, want to play golf with Tom Brady? Let's discuss this deal over lunch. We'll have Tom Brady join us. That may have greater value in the long run than his skills as a broadcaster, whatever those skills might be. But in the immediate future, Fox has the Super Bowl this year. So I would expect that he will be part of their coverage, not in the game itself, but there's a six-hour pregame and then a halftime and then a postgame. And they'd be very foolish not to want Tom Brady to be front and center as part of that. I mean, I don't know. Maybe um, Rihanna will have him as part of her halftime show. The Navy might like it. Who knows about all that How that works? All we know is Bob Costas. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he won't be as good as you, but you know what? Tom, Maybe Tom Brady and show. Rihanna, your halftime entertainment. Yeah, there you go. I would watch. It's a fine I idea, would, Laura. I Why didn't watch. I think of that? I, I don't know, but if it, if it ticks, it was my Absolute, idea. Remember so that, Bob Costas. All right, everyone, yes. thank you so much. Always you, you great have talking the, you to have you. The, you have the patent on it. It's yours. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Thank you so much. And everyone, listen, the mystery at the zoo. Yes, the Dallas Zoo is deepening. New details from the Dallas Zoo where animals keep getting tampered with. Stay with us.
An update tonight on one of the multiple mysteries at the Dallas Zoo. And this time it's good news. The zoo says the two emperor tamarind monkeys that were recovered by police yesterday are healthy and uninjured. Their names are Bella and Finn, and they're seen here in a quarantine enclosure where they're going to stay for a while before returning to their regular habitat. Veterinarians say they lost a little weight, but are now eating and drinking. The monkeys were discovered missing on Monday, and the zoo saying their habitat was intentionally compromised. A tip led police to find them in an abandoned house about 15 miles from the zoo, which is offering now a $25,000 reward for information leading to an arrest. The zoo says security has been tightened due to a series of tampering incidents, but that significant changes are still needed. Meantime, Zuziana in Brossard, Louisiana, says 12 squirrel monkeys were stolen from their enclosure over the weekend. Police say an investigation is underway, but as of tonight, the monkeys there are still missing. Next, the fight over how we teach and talk about race in this country. We'll go to Ground Zero in Florida, where Governor DeSantis is warring with the College Board over their AP African American Studies course. You know, we've been talking a lot about racism in this country and race relations more broadly, particularly after the fatal police beating of Tyree Nichols, a 29-year-old unarmed black man. There's been conversations about race, about policing, and about power and its abuse for years. Complicated, of course, by the fact that the five officers charged in Nichols' death are also black. That's why many feel so passionate about how we teach about the legacy of race and racism in this country. It's also why it's become, frankly, so controversial, especially in places like Florida, where the Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, has been slamming a new AP African-American studies course. Tonight, the college board is out with changes to that curriculum, raising questions about why they choose and why they chose to remove certain topics. CNN's Leila Santiago has the very latest. Look at this traffic. For 42 years, not knowing this man was killed right here, and my mishistory from that moment was never the same. The man was Arthur McDuffie, a black father beaten to death by white police officers in Miami in 1979. When the officers were acquitted, riots followed. So it happened right here. Right here. It's places like this that are central to historian Marvin Dunn's Teach the Truth Tours, an effort to shed light on the history he says many students don't learn about in the classroom. There is now an effort in Florida to cherry-pick history. And when you start cherry-picking history, you need to make sure you don't have somebody doing that who hates cherries. The latest controversy, an advanced placement African-American study course. The college board, the nonprofit that oversees the AP program, has now revised its official coursework. Florida's Department of Education had rejected the initial proposal to the pilot course, saying it was, quote, inexplicably contrary to Florida law and significantly lacks educational value. Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, up to this point has been very critical of the pilot program. We have history, a lot of different shapes and sizes people that have participated uh, to make the country great, uh, people that have stood up when it wasn't easy, and they all deserve uh, uh, to be taught. But abolishing prisons, being taught to high school kids as if that's somehow a fact, no, that, that's, that's not appropriate. 
Last year, Florida passed legislation known as the Stop Woke Act, championed by DeSantis. In part, it barred instruction that suggests anyone is privileged or oppressed based on their race or skin color. The state's objections to the AP course stemmed from proposed coursework written a year ago for the pilot program. The Department of Education provided CNN with a copy of the curriculum they reviewed and a list of the state's objections, all related to Unit 4, titled Movements and Debates. Concerns included black queer studies, movements for black lives, black feminist literary thought, among others, citing concerns about the works of specific authors and scholars. This course on black history, what are one of, what's one of the lessons about? Queer theory. Now, who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory? That is somebody pushing an agenda on our kids. But in the newly released official framework, Unit 4 does not include any of the authors or scholars that the state listed as a concern. Queer theory and Black Lives Matter still mentioned in the course, but only as ideas for potential student project topics. We asked the co-chair of the development committee for the course if any changes were made because of the objections of the state of Florida. No. That, if, 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 if that were the case... If, if the state of Florida or any state itself could, could single-handedly alter the curriculum of African-American studies, the AP African-American studies course, or any AP course for that matter, it would actually undermine the integrity of the process that we have in place. I learned a lot. C.J. Footman, T.J. Brown, and their moms who live in Miami say they've been waiting for a course like this. They all attended a Teach the Truth tour and say they wouldn't know as much about their own history if it weren't for the courses taught by Dunn. We learn about the same people every year. George Washington Carver, Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks. I feel like it's, it's just the same stuff being taught to us, and it's kind of like, okay, they can know this, but that's it. I feel like if we don't learn this, history might just repeat itself and it's going to keep going on and on. So we have to learn it in order to stop it. Some parents welcomed the scrutiny. Omisha Smith told us she wouldn't mind if her own daughter took the course, but some things, she said, are best taught at home. Some things, like the queer studies, that may or may not offend some of the children, uh, make them feel a little bit uncomfortable. As for Professor Dunn, he's now part of a lawsuit against the state's stop woke law. Being uncomfortable, he says, is a part of learning and understanding the history that is often overlooked. It looked like what had happened here. A man had been massacred in the, at, the, at this spot. But listen, every community in this country has spots like this. Places where blacks have been abused, killed, and they've been forgotten about. This is not unique to Miami. And this morning, when Governor Ron DeSantis was asked about the release of the new coursework, he said he hadn't read through it yet. His office tells me, though, that the Florida Department of Education is reviewing the coursework to see if it complies with Florida law. But, you know, therein lies the big question. Will Florida accept this as is with these revisions and allow it to be taught in Florida classrooms? Laura? Layla, thank you so much. I do want to turn now to Robert Patterson, who you just heard from in Layla's piece. He's a professor of African-American studies at Georgetown University and served as co-chair of the Committee of Professors and Teachers who developed the AP African-American Studies course. Thank you for being here today, Professor. I'm really intrigued because I want to take a step back for a moment. It sounds like a lot yes. of the talking points that we've heard from Governor Santos up to this point had been based on proposed aspects, not a final curriculum. Is that true? So, 
Good evening, Laura. Yes, that, uh, that's an important point to make a distinction on. In fact, the document that the state of Florida got was not officially given to them, from my understanding, by the college board. It was a very early document that was a collection, sort of, if you could think of, of a wish list of what over 100 college professors, based on the syllabi that they use in their introductory courses, would say, oh, I teach this, oh, I teach this. These are major topics that need to be covered. So that document itself was never intended to be the course framework for the course. And so it's wow. just interesting that, that they're actually using that. It is indeed, of course, because, of course, you know, people run with it and think, oh, this was this right. is the full breadth and the scope, which is probably politically advantageous, if not accurate, of course. But I want to talk to you. You've developed this new official AP African-American Studies curriculum. Tell me how you decided what to include. Right. So absolutely. So part of this was, was based on that original document that they're using. We brought a bunch of professors and high school teachers together who went through that document and said, these are topics that you must keep, you could keep or should not keep. Based on that feedback, the development committee then began to pare down the course into a workable course that could be implemented to high school students at a pace that was appropriate, at a conceptual level that was appropriate. This summer, we spent the week with high school teachers at the AP Summer Institute. We got feedback from them. And with regards to issues about some of the some of the uh, readings that will be included, maybe some of the topics, again, that was based on their expertise as AP teachers or as African-American studies teachers who were not in an AP course, but were changing the current courses that they teach into that. From there, we continue to seek feedback and, find, and begin to finalize the course. Some of these changes, just as important for your viewers to understand, some of these changes were already in play before the state of Florida released their response to a framework they should not have actually been responding to in January. In November, for example, we had decided that they would make, on November 8th, we had made a decision that we would begin using just primary sources. And so some of the secondary readings would actually not be in there. Secondly, and more importantly, the project that the students have to do that is a part of research, that is a part of the exam score, used to be a week in, in the pilot. Now it's going to be three weeks in pilot two. That right there requires the removal of some actual instructional days. And some of these topics, let's be very clear about this, that are in that initial document from February of 2022 is currently not in the pilot that the teachers are teaching at the 60 plus schools across the United States. This is so important to get this clarity because I think there is the perception and this is the, really the power of the narrative that has come and emerged right. from all of this. Um, and it's important to really not only demystify the process, but to clarify and fact check what has been said. You know, the, the governor um, DeSantis spoke about the idea of not understanding really the need to have a separate course material or coursework right. on African-American history because it should all be incorporated and is all part of more of the umbrella term of American history. Um, you know, your expertise, obviously, in the work you do as the professor of African-American studies and in all the work you've done, you recognize there is value in having a nuanced um, curriculum with respect to it. Tell us why. Well, a, a couple of reasons. First of all, we all know that from the students who were in the interviews um, that your colleague Leila Santiago conducted, that American history does not include African-American history writ largely. So that's number one. Number two, this is a course in African-American studies. So it's not just a history course, but it's bringing together literature, visual analysis, data analysis, primary sources, 
and, and other issues that are related to understand black life, black history and black thoughts. But as importantly, okay, um, we know that white supremacy is a central part of American education. And part of what this course is doing is challenging white supremacy, is challenging anti-Black racism. And quite frankly, that seems to be what part of the issue is that the state of Florida has taken with the course, that it challenges some of the very premises um, that seem to have political currency and, uh, and, and we might need to think more about. I mean, I don't know how you educate without challenging one's mind or Mis, you know, misconceptions and preconceived notions. Thank you so much for your time and explaining all that you have tonight. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, too. I want to turn now to our panel. Ramesh Panaru is here, editor at the National Review, and CNN political commentator Ashley Allison and political analyst Laura Barone-Lopez all here with me as well. Let me begin with you, Laura, on this point, because you had a chance to speak with the College Board in some respect about um, what the process looks like from here. Tell us about it. Yeah, NewsHour spoke to the CEO of the College Board, David Coleman, today, and he told us essentially also what Professor Patterson said, which was that This final uh, curriculum was developed as early as December. So even before these steps were taken by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he also said that if ultimately Florida decides not to accept this final um, this final document, that they are not going to revise it further, that, Mm. you know, that, that this would be something that they would have to talk to the entire college board about and that at this point they won't necessarily change it at all from so this So the governor board. would have the final, whatever happens down in Florida, they would have the final say. No, he's saying that we, they, if Florida decides to reject what, yeah. what right now the document is, they aren't going to then appease Florida by changing it further. Mm. Um, and so uh, they're hoping that Florida ultimately doesn't do that. You know, they're, they're not saying that they would take AP classes out of Florida because that's another uh, issue that was potentially raised about whether or not all AP classes would withdraw from Florida. And the CEO of the College Board said that's not something that we're considering at this time. You know, one thing that I, I think is also important is that in the terms of the sourcing in that document that they said certain readings or secondary sources would potentially uh, be uh, distributed to the students. what the CEO of the College Board said was that in all of these AP courses, when they are finalized, they do not mandate secondary sourcing. They do not mandate that a student has to read a specific work of, you know, uh, a, a specific book or a specific uh, um, document that was written by secondary sources at all, whether it's, you know, Latin American history, whether it's Asian American history, Mexican American history, that is not in those courses. So he was essentially saying that eventually that was not going to be something that was finalized in, in the AP coursework. Ramesh, on the idea of why, I mean, politically, this, the idea, look, if you're working off and the talking points are around a document that was never really intended to be more than perhaps an intellectual brainstorm and a pedagogical discussion of what to do next, um, why do you think there has been this, this focus on, on the range of issues that each individual states are facing, including Florida? Why do you think this continues to be top of mind so close to the political surface? Well, I think that there are lots of reasons for this, Uh, and some of it has to do with the way parents have gotten mobilized on the issue of education over the last few years, and particularly with the experience of COVID. And some of it is this rising concern, particularly among conservatives, with the idea that there is too much of a political slant uh, in uh, too many of our public schools. 
and you looked at the original Unit 4 framework that they were talking about, movements and debates, and there wasn't a ton of debate. Um, there was the case for reparations, which is absolutely something that deserves study, but no case against reparations made at the same time. And I, if my own view is that it's too bad that we got rid of the case for reparations as, as something that people are going to study. We should have just added to it and t- had more of the debate on all sides. Interesting. I, I always assume when I see a syllabus or the curriculum that if you're talking about one issue, my assumption, maybe it's naive, would be that any good curriculum would include the other side, would include the discussion about the counterpoints to strengthen one's belief in one or the other. Um, and so I wonder from your perspective, just knowing how prevalent this is, Ashley, is this going to be something that will continue into 2024? It's not just Florida. They're having these discussions. We see school board meetings all over the country that are impacted by the idea of parental choice and insight and what happens next. I do think it will go into 2024. I I just have to say, I think on the first day of Black History Month, I find myself exhausted as a Black American in this country where we had to watch the funeral of Tyree Nichols, who was murdered at the hands of police, black police officers, but police, um, where we have to face this decision. And the reason why these courses and the depth of these courses are so important is we don't actually need the counter argument to the case for why reparations aren't happening. It's our life. They never happened. They are the, the law today is the argument. What this course is to present an alternative option to how an America that could actually live up to as ideals. We find ourselves shooting after shooting, beating after beating, death after death of black bodies, having the same argument. Because what is taught in our educational system does not provide people the context to understand that police are the derivative of slave patrols. A course like AP African American Studies, actually every course in history should talk about that. But it's absent in our in our academic system. And so the hope is it's offensive on a day like this. I understand the process and I appreciate, you know, the explanation. But this is bigger than just this process on this course. This is has political. This is a political stunt by Ron DeSantis. This is playing to his base. But it is dangerous for our country because the students, the children will lead us. The child said in that uh, expert that if we don't learn our history, we are destined to repeat us. Well, you know, bearing another black man at the hands of police feels like I've lived this history throughout my entire life. And if we don't start teaching an appropriate history, we will continue to do it. And our lawmakers will fail to change policy. So this is more than just one AP course. This is actually about changing the arc of our country, which many conservatives don't want to do. Well, yeah, a lot of conservatives don't believe that the purpose of education in the public education system is to move U.S. policy to the left, to present contested views such as that policing is based on slave patrols as though it is the uncontested truth and the historical consensus. Absolutely. Any a governor is going to who's a Republican governor of a conservative state is going to take issue with that, is not going to want taxpayer dollars spent propagandizing in favor of a left wing point of view, however passionately felt. It's not propaganda. So, it's truth. It's it. But the point is, is that. It's not propaganda that we buried Tyree Nichols and that he was killed at the hands of police. That's truth. That's the reality we all watch today. It's not propaganda. Yeah, that's not anything that anybody's disputed. Yes, but the reason why... It's not why, anything Governor DeSantis disputes. But the reason why 
those deaths are allowed to happen is because we don't take the time to really understand the systemic racism that is plaguing our country that allows for a president like Donald Trump to say racist things and still be elected, to give this idea of fear that, like, if we teach a comprehensive history, something will be taken away from me. I would argue that it's better. And I'm just saying but that... the idea that the killing is because of systemic racism, it's a point of view. It's a point of view you can argue for. There are other points of view. The public education system should not be putting its weight behind one contested, contestable point of view. Well, I think that the CEO of the college board, um, David Coleman, would actually say that that's not what they're doing. That what they're doing is the reparations movement is something that will still be taught in the class. It's something that actually the students themselves can write their final research project on if they want to, and that there are no limitations on what sourcing that they want to use for that research project, and that teachers and the coursework welcomes them to use whatever primary sourcing and secondary sourcing they want to use. So they're not mandating what exactly they can do when they're crafting that entire research project on whatever subject it is. And he said that he was very concerned about the chilling effect that laws like those in Florida will have in classrooms and that teachers have already voiced their concern about the fact that they may not be able to uh, teach, you know, the influence of black gay leaders and their place in history, what they did in history uh, to their students and and the fact that they may not be able to do research projects on that if courses like this aren't taught. This conversation Reminds me of, I think it was a Supreme Court justice who talked about education as a marketplace of ideas. This was a hell of a market. We'll talk more about this, everyone. We're talking a lot tonight about how policing in this country needs to change. And it's a conversation that's been going on across this country. When we come back, we'll look at new technology, a new AI system that's designed to alert police departments to inappropriate interactions. Can it work? The death of Tyree Nichols putting the spotlight once again on the need for police reform and conversations surrounding it. And as cities are looking for solutions, some departments are adopting new tools to promote better policing, like a new AI tool that analyzes language used on police body cams. The software listens to officers and commends positive interactions between police and community members as well as flagging possible warning signs like violent language and the use of slurs. Joining me now, Seattle Police Chief Adrian Diaz, whose department has started Mm. using this technology, as well as CNN Senior Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller. Thank you to both of you for being here. I want to begin with you, um, Chief Diaz, on this point, because this is some pretty still new technology. But there is reporting that your department is um, already thinking about re-upping into a two-year contract. Have you seen evidence of behavior this is actually working? Yeah, we're just looking at uh, how we operationalize. Uh, It's part of our equity, accountability, and quality system. And uh, specifically to the software that we're using is part of that quality. As you mentioned, uh, it's really about understanding if officers are escalating and de-escalating a situation just based on their language, based on their uh, actual tone. As, as I have many friendships, uh, you can say hi in many different ways, and people can understand that based on how you say hi, it could actually, uh, just the tone of it can actually come across condescending or it could actually come across a lot more aggressive, even though many officers might say, 
well, I just said hello, and uh, I didn't think I was escalating the situation. And so using that technology to be able to do that uh, really helps uh, us be able to train officers in the right manner to actually make sure that we're providing a quality service. Oh, look, I, I know quite well. I mean, my tone is everything, Chief, <laughs> and, the way, and the way you think about things and how people are really using it. So I understand on that very point that the company did issue a statement, I want to say, um, it's called Trulio, by the way. And they told us in a statement that they believe technology like this could have identified the deficiencies that led to the death of Tyree Nichols. Um, I wonder in particular, do you think that would be possible, given what you know about the technology and the use of AI to alert and flag? Well, we're not using it in the manner that they probably are describing. What we're trying to do is take an aggregate data set and really try to understand how do we train officers to provide you know professionalism and equity in how they uh, are policing and so based on language and how they actually de-escalate situations and i think that that's overall you're really trying to change that culture of of um, what you're providing that uh, the level of service and so i think that's our focus effort and i i do think if you're if you're really changing that culture and really infusing that level of de-escalation always being mindful about how you train officers that does, you know, it's going to improve policing. It's going to improve the quality of service that you do. John, I want to bring you in here because, of course, it, there's always a question of how it can be used. I mean, is it the idea that you are using it as a training, meaning everything is looked at in retrospect and what has already happened as opposed to in real time? But we, we have seen officers, for example, saying things like stop resisting, um, talking about in Memphis their version of events, the narrative that's been crafted. Um, if this is just a, a language system... Is it possible to then maybe game the system? Well, I think what you're seeing is a struggle that police departments are having to get more out of their body cameras. Right now, if there's a critical incident, they can go back to the body cameras, they can rewind history, and they can look at it um, in almost real time. But what are you getting out of the 35,000 body cameras uh, from New York City police officers, or the 9,000 in L.A., or the 2,000 in Memphis, uh, when there isn't a critical incident? What are you learning about performance? So you can look at them randomly, but tools like Trulio will flag ones of interest for you that'll push those to the top that'll allow you to commend good behavior, uh, look at critical behavior. There's another system called Atlas, uh, brought forward by Jonathan Parham, a New Jersey police chief, uh, that's less technology-driven on the AI side and more clinical. Um, in the Atlas model, it says, where are your, if the police department is the patient, where are your problems? Is it on domestic violence incidents? Is it on pedestrian stops? Are you getting most of your civilian complaints from car stops? And they'll pull those incidents, and they'll sit with the officer and play them their tapes with the department policy alongside it. And they'll say, this is you. This is the policy. Are you doing it right? Are you doing it wrong? And then you learn two important things, Laura. Number one, if lots of them are doing it outside the policy, mm. then you have to ask yourself, what's wrong with the training that the officers don't get the policy? Do we need to fix something on our end as managers? Or if it's a small number of officers, we need to get them retrained. So these, tool, also, these yeah. tools are finding their way um, to improve police departments using the technology for more than just recording the past. And you're right about the idea to also identify essentially what we talk about, what the culture of policing in that department may ultimately be. Chief Adrian Diaz, John Miller, thank you for joining us tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. 
Look, the road to 2024 and the Republican Party is about to get a bit more crowded. The former South Carolina governor, Nikki Haley, is expected to throw her hat into the ring, challenging former President Trump for the GOP nomination. And we're going to talk about it next. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley expected to announce her 2024 presidential run this very month. According to a person familiar with her plans, Haley will make her announcement on February 15th in Charleston. She'd be the first Republican to jump into the race and challenge former President Donald Trump. Haley gave her clearest indication that she would run during an interview with Fox News just last month. When you're looking at a run for president, you look at two things. You first look at, does the current situation push for new leadership? The second question is, am I that person that could be that new leader? Yes, we need to go in a new direction. And can I be that leader? Yes, I think it's time for new generational change. I don't think you need to be 80 years old to go be a leader in D.C. Well, back with me now, Ramesh Panuru, Ashley Allison, and Laura Barone Lopez on these points as well. I mean, let me start. The idea that he's playing, she's playing immediately the generational card. That the idea of, look, I mean, we know who she's talking about, given all the comments surrounding President Biden and, frankly, President Trump as well. Is that a successful strategy? Well, I, I think it is important to note it is a way of attacking Trump while appearing to attack Biden. Mm. Uh, but uh, the question about whether it's an effective strategy, I think, has to get at another point, which is voters can make their own conclusions about the age and fitness of a candidate. They don't need you as the candidate to point it out to them. So I do wonder if that's maybe a little bit crude. Well, if it's crude, it's been done thousands of times Mm -hmm. in the last couple of years. But your point is well taken. Laura, on this point, though, there's been a lot of conversation about who would be the first person to throw their hat into the ring. And many thought that first might be a bit of a sacrificial lamb because now the one person who is in the race, former President Donald Trump, can, you know, have their sights fixated on this person. Announcing this early, what do you think? Yeah, the question is how many quickly announce in succession behind her or if she is left out there for a while where it's just her and the former president going at each other. Is she able to differentiate herself? Because right now she's going to have to explain how she was within the Trump administration, supported a number of his policies, but beyond generation, how exactly is she going to say that she's different uh, than the former president? And right now she hasn't explained any of that. And, you know, uh, a name that always comes up is Governor Ron DeSantis. We mm-hmm. talk about him a lot, frankly. Um, and I think there is, there's good reason for doing so. Listen to what the former president had to say about a potential DeSantis run and the issue of loyalty coming up. Ron would have not been governor if it wasn't for me, and that's okay. When I hear he might run, you know, I consider that very disloyal, but it's not about loyalty. But to me it is. It's always about loyalty. But for a lot of people, it's not about loyalty. Well, loyalty has been a common refrain, but I do want to play what DeSantis said in response (laughs) to that. Listen. Not only did we win re-election, we won with the highest percentage of the vote that any Republican governor candidate has in the history of the state of Florida. We won by the largest raw vote margin, over 1.5 million votes, than any uh, governor candidate has ever had in Florida history. And so what I would just say is uh, that verdict has been rendered by the people of the state of Florida. Ashley, what's your take on this? I mean, in part, Laura's point is really well taken on the idea of, look, 
Haley's going to have to explain the why now and her allegiance to the former president. Then you have the issue of loyalty coming up. And you've got the facts of what the elections really show, uh, showed. Is that nuance going to be appreciated? I don't actually know. I mean, I think that Haley and DeSantis both are very closely aligned to Donald Trump on a policy note. Um, I think DeSantis makes these points about the electorate speaking clearly in Florida, mind you, about his election to say, guess what, Trump? I won and I didn't need you in this reelect to kind of give a jab without even saying Trump's name. For Donald Trump, though, the more people who jump into his, the race, he doesn't really want a DeSantis. DeSantis has a lot of money that he can spend through his PACs. Nikki Haley, not so much. He wants, meaning former President Donald Trump, wants more people in this race to split the number of votes across the Republican Party and he can bank. What I think, though, is interesting is, is that if as soon as Nikki Haley announces, if more people don't fall, it's really her running against Donald Trump. And she I, if she was smart, she would start running against Joe Biden. Also, I'm Donald Ooh. Trump lost to uh, Joe Biden. I'm the person who can beat the longer she's the only person in the race, the better that fits for her. But the more the, the more candidates in that Republican field, I think the better it fares for Donald Trump. You know, I think it's also interesting that Trump is playing the loyalty card yeah. because remember his success in 2015, 2016, of course, he was the insurgent. He was against the establishment. This is a classic establishment move saying you owe me yeah. because I'm in charge of everything and it's not your turn. It'll be interesting to see whether that kind of campaign can work for Trump. It'll be interesting, too, if we see the president of the United States go from I intend to run again to the launching of the re-election campaign officially right now. We'll have to see. Everyone just ahead, Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny being transferred now to a harsher solitary confinement as his health continues to deteriorate. Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who is serving a nine-year sentence in a high-security Russian prison, is now being sent to even harsher solitary confinement for the maximum possible six months, according to his lawyer. Navalny's health is failing, and his family is begging the Kremlin to provide the medical care he needs to get well. Joining us now is Anna Veduta. She is the vice president of the Anti-Corruption Foundation that Alexei Navalny started. I'm so glad that you're here. Everyone is watching and um, with extraordinary anxiety and concern. Tell me about his health right now. Well, we are greatly concerned for his health. Uh, for the reason that, for example, in recent weeks, he've lost 15 pounds. He is now experiencing extreme uh, pain in his stomach for the reason that he's been deliberately infected with the respiratory infection or some kind of flu. And uh, instead of providing him with a proper medication and with a proper medical care, they've been um, administering like huge overdoses of antibiotics, which actually led to, to this severe pains and the loss of weight. And he is being kept in the really unbearable um, conditions because this is a seven to eight uh, feet concrete cell where he is being kept almost permanently. Eleven times in a row he's been sent there and now he's going to be spending his six months in a cell just like that. It's called the cell type uh, facility. Um, you are not allowed to uh, lay down during the daytime because your bed is fastened to the wall. The only thing you have is a small iron stool. And as the viewers of uh, your wonderful channel can recall, 
Um, he's been poisoned with a Novichok nerve agent, and although he survived this poisoning and although he was able to recover, um, there are consequences to that. It takes a, a toll, I mean, a, a huge toll on your health. And, I mean, all what is happening to him right now is on top of everything that have been, uh, was happening to him before. For example, the severe back pains. And the cage is so small that he wasn't able to do his, uh, you know, regular routine, like physical routine, which helps with this back pain. And now he's also losing this weight and he's uh, being, he's experiencing sleep deprivation, which, you know, is a torture because in front of this uh, cell where he's been, this cage where he's been kept, uh, they've put another person who is, uh, well, clinically insane well, some kind of medical definition of that, who is barking at night, who is crying at night, and, they, and he can hear it very clear, mm-hmm. so he can't sleep. And they've also put a very bright lamp, to, three of those, actually, in his cell, so, so, so bright that it hurts his eyes. So, I mean, like, all and all, everything they do, they do it... To break him. Yeah, Oh, it's impossible. Let's put it this way. He will die before he breaks. That's for sure. And I want to point out, I mean, there's a, he's been tweeting, or having a, or his, through his lawyers, we able to get a tweet out via his lawyers. And then one of them, he um, says how important it is to do just about anything in order to throw the yoke of these scoundrels off Russia. Let us try to remain strong and do all we can every day. And he's going on to talk about his confinement. And he's still defiant and trying to and make sure people realize the importance of him as a symbol and what it really means, even now. Even now, and not only that, uh, he sues his penal colony on every violation of his rights, which is, again, permanent, because when it comes to Navalny, there is now such thing as a glimpse of rule of law, even by the unbearable standards of uh, the Russian, what, what counts as a rule of law over there. And he uses every hearing... Uh, while suing this penal colony to protest against the war, to state his anti-war position, to say to the Russian people that they need to fight it, not not only fight for our country, but to fight against the war. And this is one of the reasons why they are so severe to him, because they can't silence him no matter what they do, no matter how unbearable they do it to, to him. And they really do it to make him suffer and to make him regret what he, that he returned and stayed with his country and stayed on his positions. And in reality, all they've done is perhaps strengthen the resolve of everyone watching to ensure his freedom. Thank you so much, everyone. For more on the story of how Alexei Navalny ended up in prison after surviving an alleged assassination attempt by the Kremlin, check out the Oscar-nominated CNN film Navalny, streaming right now on HBO Max. Next... A moment of humanity in the middle of the hyper-partisanship here in Washington, D.C. Everyone, thank you for watching. But before we go, a rare moment of encouragement in the midst of Washington's dysfunction the other day. Listen to this exchange between House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer, a Republican, and Democrat Jamie Raskin, who is undergoing chemotherapy to treat lymphoma. I yield to the distinguished gentleman from Maryland, ranking member Jamie Raskins, to introduce his members. But first, I want to publicly say, Mr. Raskins, we're all rooting for you. Uh, we know that you're going to win this battle. Uh, if, uh, you're in our thoughts and prayers, and it's good to see you here today. I yield to ranking member Raskin. 
Mr. Chairman, thank you so much. It means a lot to me, and I've been uh, gratified to receive so many kind words of uh, encouragement and sympathy from colleagues on both sides of the aisle. And uh, I hope um, that these expressions of um, concern and solidarity will become seeds of friendship over the year. I certainly plan on getting through this thing and uh, beating it. And I thank you for your patience and indulgence. And Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.